0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Matt Young, CEO of UserVoice. In this episode, Matt shares how he has navigated the shift from CTO to CEO with his biggest learning along the way. We then discussed how UserVoice uses its product to collect user feedback, why user interviews are the most impactful form of customer feedback, how you can maximize the time invested while doing them, and we wrapped up by discussing how to avoid confirmation bias while conducting your research. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads to inside of apps and team members' heads. Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. How do you build a habit
1: for your product you Not you
0: these, these just gun for revenue in the door. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. And here's today's episode. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. For the listeners, Matt is the CEO of UserVoice, a product feedback management platform that enables businesses to make data-driven product decisions and prioritize feature requests by making customer feedback more meaningful. Prior to being made CEO at UserVoice, Matt was the VP of Engineering, and before that, he served as the VP and CTO at Vidori. So... My first question for you, Matt, is now that you've served at as a C-level at two different roles, what have you found to be the biggest difference between being CTO and CEO?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, way to take someone out of their comfort zone, especially if you're an engineer and a, and a technically minded person. I think most engineers that you talk to are logical people and they like things to be predictable and, and organized. And moving from a, uh, engineering leadership position into a organization leading, um, position, it shifts the role from that of being a, uh, logical person to a logical plus people person. And, uh, for, for most engineers who I think are introverts, that's been a a very interesting challenge, but also a source of tremendous growth. I think I've really enjoyed the, um, the challenges that it's presented before me. But yeah, it was kind of an interesting story how we got there. It it happened because we we came up with another product and the existing CEO was who was a founder of the company, wanted to spin that off into another organization. And and, you know, he and I had, had been close in terms of strategizing on on the company directly. He's like, I think you should take over. I was like, this is never in the playbook for me. Um yeah. but I think that, you know, there's no CEO school. So everyone has a story like that if they, they've they landed in that position and, and you know, they have to be comfortable winging it in a lot of, in a lot of ways.
0: Nice, yeah. I can never see that people aspect uh, being a shift and a change as well. Um, it is something that it's very, very interesting. You also mentioned as well, like being an introvert uh, and then going on to sort of lead. And I think this is one of the things that I, it's often, it's like in the past when we've had discussions and we've spoken to people, it's like, introvert was like you need to uh get better and be more outward and like work on these skills where I think a lot of the times it should be the opposite. It's like where extroverts uh, like myself as well need to work on becoming more introverted, being more accepting ah. for those around us and things like this. And this was like one really interesting thing somebody mentioned to me a few years back and I always think about it. It's like, okay, there's a really, really strong skill set in being an introvert and there's a really, really strong set in being extroverted but there's also equally as bad on either side. It's really important for both to understand the weaknesses and strengths. Uh, how do you see it as being like more of an introvert character than coming to a CEO? Yeah,
1: it's, it's interesting that you said that I hadn't thought about, um, I think for most introverts, they, they look with envy at extroverts, like, Oh, it's gotta be so easy for them. They can just relate to anyone without spending yeah. so much energy. Um, but I, I never thought about the counter position of an extrovert needing to rein it in sometimes. Um, it's, it's really not bad. I think that most introverts it's, it's not about, um, not wanting those connections or, or being bad at them. It just tends to take more energy, I think, than, than, um, for extroverted people for whom, you know, they, they feed off of that, that interaction with people. Um, the, the growth has been in making sure that I, um, express empathy in a really humanistic way. Um, maybe a lot of introverts, this is at least true for me. I don't know if others, but, um, think logically about inputs and outputs. And, you know, if a human being is told this, then this is the thing that they should do. And that's nonsense. Like,
0: (laughs) just doesn't. (laughs) Um,
1: uh, you know, understanding that, that people are, are all going to be different and handle things in different ways. And just being understanding of that, that's been, uh a, quite an education and a really valuable one
0: yeah i've seen that as well working with the previous uh, leaders and so forth making this transition that is one of the more difficult things to understand uh so yeah,
1: cool you so yourself occasionally yeah. being frustrated by by some of those things and uh you know mm-hmm. it's probably the greatest source of stress in the job that you really um want everything to be lined up and perfect and it's never so convenient uh yeah, it, it's uh it's probably the biggest source of stress, I think, in being a CEO, independent of of retention, new business sales, managing cash, all that stuff. It's making sure that, that people yeah. are all getting what they need.
0: And I think also the tough thing is always the expectation side of things. Like I think generally, um, at least from my perspective, I've seen I set unrealistic expectations for myself and then like mm-hmm. trying to be wary of not doing the same for others around me. Uh it, it's very like we always want to get the best out of everyone, but sometimes like I think from my side, I can be overly optimistic and I uh, also need to like be wary of that when I'm working with others and what the expectations should be and shouldn't be.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's also an expectation from people who work for you that you have all the answers and uh, there there's an interesting evolution of uh, that myth being broken for them and then coming yeah. to realize that that's a strength, right? Like being able to admit when you don't know and then bringing that culture to the entire organization, we, we try to foster a culture of experimentation where uh, being wrong is a really good thing if if we can learn a lot from it. Uh, and I think most people, this this I find true, especially in the United States, um, people have this expectation of perfection for themselves, which is, is highly unrealistic.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, the previous company I used to work with as well, Uh, we had a similar culture uh, where it was like you weren't expected to have all the answers but like you expect to be transparent and learn and test and iterate constantly and definitely something i think is really really important because you don't like that in today's market and today's environment things are changing so fast it's impossible for anybody to have all the answers no matter how much experience you've gathered over the years as well you may be able to weather through uh, those scenarios and figure out solutions faster but uh, being able to admit that and having the team around you that understands that supports you, I think, is is a superpower when you get there. Uh,
1: yeah, it, it's necessary and one of the few things that I think just takes a lot of experience to get good at.
0: For sure. So that's, you've uh, been in the role now almost three years. Did I remember that correctly. I'm just trying to recall yep. from LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. What's what's happened in that time? Like uh, how how do you see the product evolving now and
1: uh, well we we had a pandemic. that was a thing, and we're we're now in the middle of a pretty shaky economy uh, globally. So really? One of the things that happens in 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 our business and uh, our primary buyers is in product management. Uh, product management software is not yet at a level like sales and marketing software or engineering software where people understand, what the the common software tools are that you need and the budgets that should be allocated for them. In sales, everyone will tell you that you need a CRM. You, if you do outbound, you need outbound tools for that. You need uh, software that figures out information about your buyers and the companies that they work for and all that stuff. And in engineering, you you might use software to execute agile practices and and all of that. But in product management, people look for roadmap tools, they look for behavioral analytics tools, they look for design tools. They look for product feedback tools like ours, um, but there aren't clear budgets set and there isn't a clear uh, methodology set across product management yet. So even before the pandemic came into the mix, that was one of the the things that we were wrestling with, trying to you know help people arrive at a common set of goals in using software tools to help them do their jobs better. Um, when the pandemic hit, budgets were getting slashed left and right with the economy change, budgets get slashed left and right. So without the benefit of that expectation of the need for those tools, um, reasserting the value of, um, you know, in our case, a tool that actually helps you really understand your customer's problems and how that is a, uh, something that's even more necessary when resources are short, you have fewer people, you have less money why wouldn't you want to automate the ability to like really see what your target market wants to have? Um, you know, we, we cost a fraction of what a full-time employee costs and can do much more work than a full-time employee could be expected to do in terms of understanding your user base. Um, it's, it's really interesting seeing like the, um, the lack of clarity in, in that understanding, um, that comes up. So, it's been a challenge, but I think, uh, if anything, it, it puts into even more stark contrast what we need to learn about the mentality of, of someone buying software like
0: ours. For oh, sure. I, I still like there's one of these things um, that David Omin, the CEO of Hot Drum said to me one point was like, when thinking about your products, you always want to try and understand like where on the budget list uh, do you lie. Uh, so are you going to be the first to go out the door? You're going to be the last and are you the most important component? And I definitely see that with product tools, as you mentioned, That it's not, it's yeah. not really clear at the moment. There isn't that established value and understanding like what the ROI is of tools, uh, like yourself, like user voice and others. Um, w- we know that they're valuable, but I don't think anybody's really got to the point where they understand, okay, this is a critical component and we cannot do without these tools yet. Um,
1: I think it's, it's because it's very difficult to quantify the value. If, if I was able to say, I think, uh, our company and most of our competitors and anyone who sells into product managers would, would wake up in a much more comfortable space tomorrow. If there was a way to draw a a solid line between a change to your product and how that impacts either retention or new business or what it does, but it's just so hard to do because there's so many variables. Going on in the mix, at best, there's correlation, but not causation.
0: Yeah, I, I would say probably like the, the closest thing you can get to that is actually user feedback, and it doesn't matter like what data you're collecting, so forth. Like you're always going to get those correlations, but the causation, I think, the closest thing you can is actually hearing it from the horse's mouth. And um, so today, I like, I'm interested actually in chatting to you about collecting feedback in order to understand like what are retention drivers uh and how you go about thinking about the different touch points uh when reaching out to users. And essentially, like, how can you maximize the amount of feedback and the input that you're getting from your customers uh, while balancing, like, not pissing them off by being too pushy and too, too in their face. So I'm pretty sure, like, we were talking about a lot of this before. This is something that you think a lot about at user voice. And um maybe let's start off with, like, the first question is, like, I'm a a startup now, I want to introduce a tool to understand my customers better, like, what would be the place like you recommend people actually get started uh, when it comes to collecting feedback?
1: Yeah. um, The most important takeaway, I think, is that no matter where you are, whether you're pre-market in an alpha test or something like that, you need to be getting feedback about your software right away. And uh, using a tool like ours at that stage is a mistake. Don't do it. Um, start uh, actually talking to people face-to-face, look at their body language, uh, see how they react to your description of the problem, the description of the solution that you have in mind, their actual usage of it, et cetera. Um, when people come to us, especially if they're a very new company, we always ask them whether they, they have a 100 customers yet. And if you don't yet have a 100 customers, using your people uh, to talk to them is is much more important. You only end up with like a scale problem after you get to a uh, hundred or so customers. And that's when having some automation in the tools can can really be a, of great assistance. At some point, um, your team might get overwhelmed with the amount of, of feedback that's coming your way. And oh, you know whether or not you use a tool to collect feedback, you're getting it. your your sales team who's doing demos, your success team who's helping people along the way, you're hearing about the things that people like and dislike and the problems that they're facing, the ones that you solve well, the ones that you don't solve well at all, you're getting it, whether or not you record it is uh, a different challenge altogether. So, um, once you, once you cross a hundred or so customers and, and there's some variance in that, obviously, like there's some businesses out there that, uh, only sell to five, you know, whale sized customers and, and they'll want to be able to capture all feedback the if They have a lot of users. Um, But once, once you cross that, making sure that you are constantly capturing anything and everything you hear about the product gives you this really nice passive way to collect a bunch of feedback. And there's no perception of, of being annoying to your customers because you at this point haven't gone out and asked them to fill out a survey or anything. They freely offered you this information during some natural touch point anyway. So you just want to make sure you've got a tool in place that lets you capitalize on that right away. Yep. Um, it's a different, uh, story when you want to go actively solicit feedback. And and we tend to think about, uh, passively gathered feedback and actively gathered feedback in two different ways. It's very true. And you're right to mention that it's easy to overwhelm people with requests for feedback about your product. Uh, it, it doesn't take anything but a quick look in your email inbox to see that we're all overwhelmed. Like with, Hey, could you just take a few minutes to tell us about this or that? And what do you do with it? Nothing. Um you you don't answer them. Like you're uh this this was something that about a year ago we looked into in depth. We surveyed uh more than a thousand B2B SaaS software users to ask them what their attitudes were about providing feedback to companies. Um a couple of of not surprising takeaways from that. Um much more likely to provide feedback if it is a product that is critical to your job. Um, there is a lot of software that people use that just gets handed to them, but it's kind of peripheral to what they do. Think about things like expense reports and all that stuff. Like you have to do it, but it's probably not your job. Um, but the tool that you use every day for your job, you'll be more inclined to provide feedback for. Um, the second thing is you have to have some sense of confidence that it's going to get read. It's going to be acted on. It's going to be used, um, that it's considered, um, in the grand scheme of things. But the biggest, Reason by far that people don't provide feedback about the software that they use is that they weren't asked. So there are some people who are really, really like they wring their hands. Like especially marketing people say, "Oh, we we can't overwhelm them with all this stuff." Um, but if all of your signal to your customer base is through marketing messaging or, or retention calls or something like that, you have to leave yourself a little bit of room to talk about product functionality and feedback. So. Um, just by by asking, you never know what you might learn. A lot of product teams are kind of afraid of what you might get from that, but it's it's really important to
0: ask. Yeah, absolutely. And I interesting you say as all well, the points around like the number of customers being roughly a hundred before that you don't really have a scale problem. Uh, I agree with that. And then just really trying to speak to as many customers as possible and the different touch points. Like I myself am going through a similar journey as well with Abrio now, and just trying to think about like all the different touch points where we can add uh, for customer feedback and how we can start collecting as much as possible. Um, like one of the things I think is an earlier stage startup that we have is on the welcome email. It's literally like book a time uh, to have a demo or to have a chat and discuss feedback. Like trying to install different touch points. Personally, like I'm not really worried with the the notion of like irritating or pissing off customers for asking for too much feedback because I think inverse is far, far worse, like not collecting enough feedback, oh, yeah. not improving and iterating fast enough. Like, uh, it's just going to be a, a terrible situation for everybody in the end as well.
1: We, we've uh, all gotten used to uh, ignoring things we don't want to do. And actually, people um, in, in our own retention um, analysis for our own customer base, if we ask you to talk about our product and you don't reply, that is information itself. So even using the the non-response as a data point is an important one that helps with with understanding your attention.
0: Yeah, uh, like you said as well, it's like if it's not a part of your core uh, job, you're less likely to respond to it. So if less people are responding to your surveys, like you maybe need to be thinking as well, like, hey, how do I become more part of the core part of their workflow so that I do start collecting more avid uh, uh, feedback from customers? So, um, nice, and then, so... How do you go then yourselves? Like it's a user voice now at this stage, you've hit a bit of scale. Uh, how do you go and collect feedback yourself? So you're trading on the product. Like what does your setup look like?
1: Uh, yeah, so we use our own product naturally um, to collect passive feedback. We've got uh, user voice's first uh, thing that it brought to market back in 2008. And I think we were the first to have done this was to put up a portal where anyone can go anytime. and And look through ideas that other people have had, offer your own ideas, upvote things, tell us whether an idea is critically important to you or whether, you know, it's kind of a, more of a nice to have. Um, those sites were initially trafficked very heavily when first released in 2008, probably through about 2015. But um, more likely to work these days are a, a targeted request to get people to say something. So either through an in-app tool, and those also have gotten a little bit noisy over the years. You know, everyone's got a, a chat bot somewhere, you know, 65 trinkets decorating the right side of your, your website that that no one's going to pay any attention to anymore. Um, so we uh, use user voice uh, internally, primarily, uh, and most of our customers do this too, where we're, we're kind of sitting where the data comes in, in customer success systems and CRM systems, in support systems like Zendesk. So if you get a ticket, uh, people might be asking how to do something, but just as often they're asking for something that your product doesn't do. So we can grab that right there. And and then so then your your support agents, your customer success team and your sales team become a primary interface to gather a bunch of feedback. Um, A tool like ours can't do it all. Um, I think a, a lot of people when they first start talking to us, they, they ask us to make the case like, well, you know, how does your tool tell us what to do? Um, it, it doesn't, right. It, yeah. <laughs> it gives you a lot of information to help you make that decision a lot more easily. So, um, all the data that we collect, we use, um, uh, user voice just as yet another, uh, a very rich source of data that we can go mine when we have an idea, like, Hey, we should look into this. We can, see what themes come out of the feedback that we're getting. And then we can start using um, the the data that we've collected to dig in more. And, and often it's as much about what got said as who said it um, that we're looking for. We're able to segment the data into markets that we care about, what kind of uh, plan they're on, where they might be geographically, what industry they're in, et cetera. Um, so we we try to marry what we're looking into with our business goals, which often have more metadata around them about segmentation, etc. Um, and because we've also captured who said what, uh, one of those huge problems, like actually arranging interviews, finding people who are willing to talk to you, that problem's already solved because I can say, I, I know that these 10 people are interested. If I go ask them for 15 minutes to chat, they're, they've already expressed interest in this problem. So they're, they're more likely to talk to me. It makes it really easy to coordinate, um, that next order conversation, which is a one-on-one interview, uh, which we do a ton of.
0: And yeah, that's definitely, I think that was one of the things we we'll learned from surveys, the great trick is just at the end of the survey like, would you be willing to, uh, chat further about this, leave your email or opt in? And then they've got a really like rich list of users that you can reach out to and yep. say, Hey, like you submitted. Uh, and also I think segmentation when it comes to like feedback is key, like not all feedback is equal. Uh, so having something like user we can able to actually quantify and understand who it came from and uh, the segments that they're in and uh, really helps you to learn and prioritize more effectively as well
1: um, yeah we can we can say things like um you know here are the the hundred people that want this feature and they represent 37 if you're a b2b company 37 different accounts and here's the collective value of all of, of, of those accounts and that's not to say that By doing this thing, you're magically going to retain all of that business. But when you compare that idea versus others, um, I think similar to what you said, if you if you ask people in a survey, are you willing to talk to me for 15 minutes afterwards? If you compare survey to survey, you can see that that uh one topic was much more popular than another. And and that uh relative comparison really helps quite a bit.
0: Yeah, interesting. And you said then you do a ton of uh, user interviews uh, yourselves. Like, what does that process look like then? Um, yeah.
1: Um, most people, when they use a um, a survey or any kind of automated feedback tool, are going to speak to you in terms of solutions. Um, they're going to ask you about what your software should do, um, what your product should do for people. Um, It's critically important to understand why they're asking for that. What is the problem that they're solving for? How does it relate to their job? Uh, How often do they do it? Uh, What if you can get any sense of like how emotionally invested they are in this aspect of their job? Is it something that's tedious and boring to them? And and if you could just make it take less long, it'll be less painful for them. Or this is the thing that you know, hey, if you can do this for me, I'm going to impress my boss, I'm going to move up the corporate ladder you are really going to help me make a name for myself. That's the kind of thing that you you're rarely going to get in written word because people tend to write pretty tersely and, and it's hard to see. But when we do a, a face-to-face meeting, whether it's electronic or, or in the old days in person to see their body language, to see them light up, to see them looking bored, uh, or, you know, I don't know why you're talking about this to me. Like, I just don't care. Um, that meta information that's coming over with the words that they say is, is really Did important. We point? spend a lot of time at user voice, um, yeah. role playing, how to get better at, at, getting to the root cause of why people are presenting a, a sales objection or, uh, you know, when they tell you like, Hey, we're going to churn, um, a, a lot of companies will ask why, and you'll get an answer, but that's not the real answer. Like it takes more work. Oh, to yeah, really. yeah. Uh, and it's so- something that most people I think are pretty uncomfortable, like. You know, the, the five whys thing is banished, but you can't just go, why, 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 why? People see right through that. Um,
0: <laughs> I know what you do. How, how
1: do you adapt that conversation to something that looks much more natural, like a conversation, but then gets you to that, like, oh, your problem is really this. So then uh, we we take all that information that we gather through those, those one-on-one conversations. And that's when I think innovation starts. I understand your problem. I want to try to come up with a solution to that problem that is going to just nail it for you um and and make it unquestionable that you need to keep our tool uh in your in your toolbox
0: yeah uh, what you mentioned with body language and stuff i found this really fascinating as well doing a user interview myself uh, previously we're talking to a a customer and basically like their problem was that it was working i think it was a guy was from kenya and they used to have customers in a lot of different villages and there was a specific a village where everybody was incredibly polite like it wasn't in their nature to be blunt or direct and uh he used to say like the only way to get feedback and understand what people thought about the product was to do face to face and the only thing they would do in the interviews was watch their body language and their facial expressions Mm -hmm. Uh, because no matter what question was asked like it was going to be a good answer it was going to be a positive response Uh, but really just watching for the subtleties and the body language and understanding okay like asked this question they said it was good but three people like squinted their face a little bit yeah they, they gave this yeah. puff look and those are like the only signals that could go off and i found that really really interesting from like a user behavior and analysis perspective really is like you even collect surveys you have these interviews but a lot of times like it's in the subtle details that really make a difference and, like you say, being able to understand this body language and, uh, and effectively translate that as well uh, it's really powerful it,
1: it does i think you know if you've been around product development long enough um, most people don't want to be rude. And especially if you're showing them something in person that's not asynchronous, they're they're gonna say generally positive things no matter what. And if you've if you've got confirmation bias at play, you're only gonna be listening uh with happy ears to the things that you want. But um really getting good at understanding the the shades of gray in there is is critically important to make sure that you make the right choices.
0: How do you avoid confirmation bias?
1: Oh, good Lord. Um, we, we, <laughs> we spend quite a lot of time, um, not making interview scripts. Uh, I think the, the more, uh, guardrails you put around the set of questions that you want to ask for a user who's reviewing a prototype or you know, talking to about a problem. Um, we usually don't even ask questions. We'll say things like, tell me more about that, uh, or, Uh, we try to just leave things as, as open-ended as possible, um, without any, any leading anything. And it, it means that you as a interviewer are going to say very few words, um, and just leave either uncomfortable silences or, or places for people to talk. When you do that, you, you tear down, uh, some of the the barriers that are created just by the artificial nature of an interview like this, where you feel like it's a question and answer format. And if, if after 10 minutes you can get someone to a point where they feel like, Oh, they're just here to listen to me. Um, people jump into this next level where they're, they might share emotions where the, the language starts going from, yeah, you know, this would be pretty good to like, you know, I, I don't really want this. Um, you know, there's other things I would like, much more than this, you, it just by spending enough time and spending enough time, getting the person into their real self rather than their interview self, um, tends to elicit the best information from people
0: you're doing something to me. I was just yeah, I think uncomfortable silence is great to, way to listen to more information. And yeah, I definitely echo and see all of those things in interviews as well. Like when you can establish that really good uh, relationship with an interview, and they understand okay, you're actively listening and trying to understand uh, what they're after, then you tend to get a lot more deeper and better feedback. But
1: uh, uh, yeah, we also you know we we try to start with um, it without it being inappropriate, we try to start with a personal question, which has actually gotten a lot more easier with a lot easier with people working at home, like you can ask about something that's in their office or, you know, if they, if you can hear kids in the background or something like that, like tell me about yeah. your kids, then they, they suddenly go from this, like, oh, this is a formal thing with some, you know, it, you know, I've sent a director of product to talk to you, like, oh, I've got to be impressive now. No, you don't. I just want to know what you think, what you really think.
0: Yeah. It, definitely the, the home dynamic has changed a lot. It's weird that you said it because today, actually, I thought about it. I got a call today from our telephone, like communication provider here to sell us some services. Uh, and normally, like, I would be a little bit annoyed because I'm at work and I don't want to be bothered by a thing. And then I heard, like, in the background, like, was either his daughter or son, like, daddy, like, are you going to come outside now? Whatever. He's yeah. like, no, I'm not coming now. I thought, okay, like, this is a different call from a sales guy. I think, like, I actually spoke to him and had this conversation. Uh, and It is weird. Like I think it is a lot easier to connect with people uh, in different environments and maybe have been a little bit more formal, a little bit less comfortable previously. When you feel in your safe space, I guess, at the other side uh, of the call. Yeah,
1: yeah. Without there being, you know, the the four white walls of a typical office conference room or something like that, it's um, it, it's been good in that I feel like the um, the connections that we make. We we speak with our own customers. We speak with people who are not our customers, who, who represent who buyers might be. But what we always try to make sure of is that uh, people come away with a feeling that they helped us. And that uh, is something that most people value quite highly.
0: Mm-hmm. I think this is one of like, uh, a really powerful things or well. something we tried to introduce and we, we're still working on is it. like, how do you recognize the people that really shape the product that you build as well? Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. ideas we still have and we're working on is actually putting together a page on our website that recognizes everybody that sat through an interview and given us like really good feedback. Um, and yeah. we're probably going to end up doing something for these members, uh, like special as well at the end of the but, uh, like acknowledging the fact that really, like and truly this is something great that you're doing. But you're smiling. Are you going to tell me something that you've done like this or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, there, there is merit to that, uh, the, the people who had the idea and the people that voted for the idea, if you, um, you know, user voice does this, it records who sent the idea and whether or not you, you want to advertise what that person's name was publicly or not, that's up to you. But, um, literally like sending them the update, like, Hey, you know, Mary, you recommended this it doesn't matter if it was mary's idea if you had it a long time ago or you know it'd been brought yeah. up a million times if you say mary thanks for offering this we did it and you have made you know you, you not only got what you want but you've made all the other users of our product better thank you we couldn't have done it without you um she's gonna come give you every idea she ever has from, like from that. then on yeah uh, so it It does work and it works in a very non-artificial way. You're not getting a badge for clicking a button or filling in a form or something like that. It's because what you said, uh, actually caused,
0: um,
1: it gets even more effective if you, uh, start sharing the process with people, um, just in general, if you, if you start saying, Hey, when, when feedback comes in, here's what we do, um, and it, it takes away some of the anxiety about like, you know, we're, we're gonna get hundreds or thousands of ideas and we can't do them all, you know, there's however many people that work here. Um, yeah. but here's how we consider it. Um, here's how we build software. Here's how we decide to release things. Here's, you know, you know, here's, um, Eileen and she works in marketing and she's trying to make sure that she's putting all, uh, all the stuff together to help you start using the, the new functionality that we're putting out there. If that person who submitted the idea understands that she set this giant machine in motion, like a, a team of 50 people started working on what she said. Like, that's an overwhelmingly nice feeling, I think, to have in the end.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it must be a really special email to receive something like that as well. Yep. Um, yeah.
1: And if you send along a, and also, hey, what's your t-shirt size, then that works really well.
0: Yeah. Dangerous for life. Uh-huh. Cool. I see we're running up to time, so I want to make sure I have time to ask you a couple of questions, ask every guest. Uh, hypothetical scenario, you join a new company, uh, uh company, retention is not doing well at all at this company. The CEO comes to you and says, hey, Matt, you need to turn things around. You're in charge. You have 90 days. What do you do? The hard part for you is like the catch is you can't tell me, okay, I'm going to go speak to customers, understand the pain points and start from there. You're just going to take a tactic uh, that you've seen work previously and run with that blindly, hoping it works at this company as well. Like, what would you want to do?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, you took away my... Yes. <laughs> you took away the right answer, right? You took yes, away the... Exactly, uh, exactly. You know, because you're going to get that answer a million times. So this this makes it much more interesting. Yeah. Um, I am going to look at competitors who are beating us in the market and do a uh, side-by-side comparison of features, of pricing, of perceived service. I'd probably go to places like G2 Crowd and things like that to to gather the, uh, the data that I can get that's probably not available in general from competitors, but how do their customers feel about them, and try to see what it is about a competitor that makes them more favorable than us. Is it um, you know, this is great that those other guys are too expensive or, you know, the, the product features are here or there, or the, the help that we get, the community that we get, whatever it is. And, uh, if I can pick out what the major area of potential improvement is, then the next order of research goes into that. Uh, what is it that we need? Do we need new pricing and packaging? Do we need new, uh, help for people? who use our product to realize the best value, what is it going to be? Um, So I I think I would start with a competitive analysis to get moving, but I'm not sure that that's always going to be the right play. It really depends on the company.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you sort of copped out a little bit because it says research in a way, and you're going to understand the pain points or the the things. But I I get it's a different take on it. Oh,
1: I mean, if you if you want the product manager answer, it's uh, using behavioral analytics to find out what the key value driving points are of uh, people uh, that stay versus not. But uh, in the company that, that we are, I, I really try to steer people away from like the hard quantitative approach because yeah. it, it works well in high-volume trial conversion, but not for ongoing long-term retention.
0: I, I definitely uh, feel I agree with that as well as that like, being somebody who is like really obsessed with having really good data analytics and everything set up, I still feel like the biggest value you get is from like, it goes customer conversations, actually face to face, user feedback, service thing, and then analytics. Like at least for me, and in terms yeah. of learnings that you can have from improvement, like that would be the order I would put it in now. Uh, after being like on the total opposite end of the scale, uh, where we believe in like data had all the answers and, uh, so.
1: Yeah, that's the the same hierarchy I would put it into. And and a lot of people skip the customer interviews because coordinating them is is hard. And especially if you're introverted, like it might be a little bit more scary to you. Yeah. But five of those to me is worth, you know, a 100 surveys being filled in or more.
0: For sure. For sure. What's one thing that you know today about your attention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Uh,
1: that you are not going to get customers to stay with you on the merits of your product alone. Um, you need to be a company that backs your product and have a relationship with the people. And I think that's, that becomes increasingly difficult to do as, uh, user bases grow larger. And, uh, I think the challenge is that the, the interconnectedness of people because of the technology that's available uh, leads you to believe that a company should be able to handle you as an individual, um, elegantly. Yeah. It's really hard to do, right? Really hard to do, um, to make everyone feel like your only customer and make everyone feel special. So to make the mistake, and this is tied into like, just using the data, um, to look at retention, you, you can't just like watch behavior and say, it's a numbers game and there's that. They, sure, you can become a unicorn. I think most unicorns do become unicorns because they're playing a numbers game, but that's not the kind of business I want to be. I want to be someone who's providing a tool that people become passionate about and feel like it really makes a difference in their life and it's not just a transaction.
0: Actually, it's a great way to finish uh, as well. I think it's all about uh, like understanding the value that we're delivering as well to our customers and being able to deliver on that and, if you can add that sort of personal touch to it where people really feel connected to the company, to the product, to the service, like uh, the end results, I think, then will show in the ultimate uh, retention that you have as a business.
1: Yeah, it generates trust and trust is not something that you can often achieve during a sales cycle.
0: No. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with, like anything they should be aware of on your end?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, visit uservoice.com if any of this has been interesting to you and, and you'd like to take a look at what we offer. Um, just in general, though, we um, if you guys have any thoughts about what you've heard here and, and want to share yours, free interview for us. We'd love for you all to get in touch and, and more than receptive to anything that you have to say about any, anything we've discussed today.
0: Awesome. Uh, will definitely make sure to leave the links as well. Anything we mentioned today in the show notes, so you can check that out. Uh, thanks so much again for joining us and I wish you best of luck going forward now.
1: Uh, thanks very much. And to you too.
0: Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts and more, Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly... If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.